Welcome to the Money, Mind, and Meaning podcast. I'm Dr. Daniel Crosby. Great to be with you. I am a huge movie buff. I am a closet wannabe movie director one day, right? And um, I watched a movie last night called All the Money in the World. That was a fantastic, a fantastic flick. And it's about the life of J. Paul Getty and his family and a kidnapping that occurs in his family. Absolutely riveting. But J. Paul Getty is the at this time the richest man in the world. And it talks about how his pursuit, his singular pursuit of money, cankers his soul and leads him to make all manner of bad decisions. But I found while watching the movie that, as I've noticed throughout my life, I have a real approach avoidance response, which is a, a shrink term for, for both sort of loving and hating this idea of massive wealth. You know, I see on the one hand how his pursuit of, of riches absolutely gutted his family life. But on the other hand, you know, he had a nice house and he had nice cars and nice suits. And those are all things that I, that I want. So in light of this, in, in honor of this movie, I wanted to have a conversation today around work-life balance, the pursuit of wealth, and where that slots in to the overall pursuit of a meaningful life. So to kick this conversation off, I want you to consider the following categories in terms of how much you value them as part of living a meaningful life. So I'm going to name five values and I want you to assign a point value to each of them so that they total to 100. If it helps you, you might want to stop the podcast for a moment, sort of draw out a pie chart with larger pieces of the pie signifying values that are more important to you. So the five values are family, health, wealth, spirituality, and intellectual growth. So take a minute, write down family, health, wealth, spirituality, and intellectual growth, and assign a point value out of 100 to each of those. Now I'd like you in a second column to consider what percentage of your average day or week is spent in pursuit or refinement of each of these goals. So assuming a 16-hour day, you consistently spend two hours a day reading and learning new things, you would assign a value of 12.5% to intellectual growth, uh, since 2 sixteenths is 12.5%. Go ahead and do that now. So now I want you to compare your stated values, the things that you profess to believe are important, with the way that you actually spend your time. Any surprises there? If you're like most people, you probably notice some startling discrepancies between the person you'd like to be and the person you are. Now, after all, you vote with your time, and behavior is a much better predictor of who you are actually becoming than are your professed values. I know that when I went through this exercise, I saw some real room for improvement. So why are we so hypocritical with ourselves? Why is it that we lie to ourselves? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. Part of the answer is born of necessity. You know, the 40 plus hour work week is a cultural norm that is a vestige of the industrial era. I would argue uh, that it has little relevance in the new knowledge and service economy. Don't think we need to do this anymore. 
But the fact is that if you work for someone else, you're likely to have an eight to five schedule. This reality paired with an ever more sprawling American landscape, and I'm speaking to you from Atlanta, Georgia, the, the home of urban sprawl, and the omnipresence of cellular devices means that we just don't spend a lot of time working. We spend a lot of time getting to work and we spend a lot of time connecting and communicating with work even outside of business hours. So that's a big part of the problem. But I'd argue that a second, perhaps even bigger reason that we become so ensconced in our work is that we think that making money is the shortcut to a happy, meaningful life. All of the things we profess to value more than money take a backseat to making a buck. Since we assume that the latter will facilitate the former, we feel like money is the thing, the, the, the lubricant, the social lubricant that gets us to where we want to be. We'll have time for prayer and meditation once we don't have to grind out a living. We'll spend time with the family when we can finally afford to take them somewhere nice on vacation, and maybe we'll start working out once the busy season's over. All the things that would truly make us happy get put on hold as we labor under the notion that money will make it all right. Well, research shows that nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, we're all familiar with the term keeping up with the Joneses. But it's doubtful that we understand just how deeply ingrained this is in our concept of wealth and success. Each year, a Gallup poll asks Americans to determine what is the smallest amount of money a family of four needs to get along in this community. So Gallup finds something fascinating, and that's that the answer to this question moves up in line with the average incomes of the respondents. So their answer effectively is, how much money does a family need to get by? Just a little more than I've got. In a developed country like ours, the notions of relative wealth and relative poverty are very much at play. Now, I don't want to minimize or cast any doubt on the fact that there is true hunger, poverty, and want that goes on in America and other developed countries. That's not to be minimized. But among the middle and upper socioeconomic classes, people tend to look to others to determine whether or not they are successful, rather than pointing to some static, objective measure of wealth. Studies show that the most noticeable way in which money impacts happiness is actually negatively. We see that the very rich enjoy a slight bump in happiness, given their comparative superiority, but the have-nots are made absolutely miserable as they look up at their better resourced counterparts. Given that the increase in happiness is slight and that the rich make up a small fraction of the total population, in general, the tendency to view money in comparative terms and trying to keep up with the Joneses is the source of a great deal of misery. So because we have this tendency to compare our own incomes with what others have, we only feel better off if we move up relative to those with whom we compare ourselves. So thinking about money and wealth in this light, it becomes a contest where your gains are tantamount to my losses and vice versa. 
in this paradigm, my striving for more, my striving for a greater income, working longer hours, this has actually decreased your happiness in aggregate. In a very real sense, we are attempting to climb to the top of a corporate ladder on the backs of those with whom we interact. And in so doing, we are sacrificing a great deal of what would actually make us happy along the way. So because of our human tendency to compare and construe wealth in relative terms, it's easy to see how the work-life balance we are constantly uh, saying that we're trying to achieve, striving to achieve, continues to shift increasingly in favor of work. You know, I saw a study out this week that said that fathers are advocating more and more for paternal leave, but then when it's granted to them, they're not taking it. Because as long as work remains a you-win-I-lose scenario, our relationship with our fellow humans will be strained at best as we continue to push each other in the direction of greater and greater imbalance. Now, the American tendency toward outward displays of wealth and comparative measurement is not endemic to all developed countries. I think in the West, in America, we tend to think that this is just the way that people are. But Switzerland is just one example of a very wealthy country with a diametrically opposed philosophy relative to showy wealth. In America, we have a mantra of, if you've got it, flaunt it. But the Swiss cultural take is, if you've got it, hide it, so as not to provoke envy in others. The Swiss approach demonstrates that our views are an outcropping of a specific way of viewing wealth, not something fundamental about human nature. It's up to us to determine how to live our own lives and to support each other on the way to balance and true happiness rather than prodding each other towards jealousy and excess. So another self-delusional variant of chasing money for happiness is the I'll stop slaving away at work when I reach XYZ salary number. Your magic number may be a salary figure uh, or it may be a wished for dollar amount to have in the bank, but whatever it is, I can just about promise you that when you get there, it won't seem like as much as you thought. It won't seem like enough. You see, we're not conditioned to think of money in terms of enough. As one of my clients once said to me, Dr. Crosby, you can never be too rich or too skinny. The scientific name for this phenomenon is the hedonic treadmill or hedonic adaptation referring to the fact that we must make more and more and more money to keep our level of happiness in the same place. What tends to happen is that our expectations rise and fall with our earnings, as well as other circumstances in life, keeping our happiness at a relatively stable place. So to demonstrate this effect, I'd like for you to consider two groups that seemingly have little in common, paraplegics and lottery winners. We would hypothesize that one year after the life-changing event, lottery winners would be much happier and paraplegics would be much sadder, right? But this is simply not the case. One year after the respective huge life-changing events, it makes little difference whether you're riding in a Bentley or a wheelchair. Happiness, happiness levels among the folks interviewed remained relatively static. Why? 
Well, we tend to overpredict the impact of external events on our happiness. One year later, paraplegics have found out that their accidents were not as catastrophic as they may have feared, and they've begun to cope. Similarly, lottery winners have found out that having money brings with it a variety of complications. No amount of spending can take away some of the tough things life throws at each and every one of us. As the saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. In much the same way, we tend to project forward to a hypothesized happier time when we have more money in the bank are making a bigger salary. The fact of the matter is, when that day arrives, we are unlikely to recognize it and will simply project forward once again, hoping in vain that something outside of ourselves will come and make it all better. So a Princeton study that's gotten a ton of press set out to answer the age-old question, can money buy happiness? And their answer was, sort of. Researchers found that making a little money did not cause sadness in an Excuse me, researchers found that making little money did not cause sadness in and of itself, but it did tend to heighten and exacerbate existing worries. For instance, among people who were divorced, 51% of those who made less than $1,000 a month reported having felt sad or stressed the previous day, uh, whereas that number fell to just 24% among those earning more than $3,000 a month. Having more money seems to provide those undergoing adversity with greater security and resources for dealing with their troubles. However, the researchers found that this effect, mitigating the impact of difficulty, really began to flatten out around a salary of $75,000. For those making more than $75,000, individual differences, individual personality characteristics, had much more to do with happiness than money. Now, while the study doesn't make any specific inferences as to why 75 grand is the magic number, I'll take a stab at it. For most of us, making $75,000 a year is enough to live in a safe home, uh, attend a good school, and have appropriate leisure time. Now, once those basic needs are met, quality of life has less to do with buying happiness and more to do with individual attitudes and choices. After all, someone who makes $750,000 a year can buy a faster car than someone who makes $75,000 a year, but their ability to get from point A to point B is not substantially improved. It would seem that once we have our basic financial needs met, the rest is up to us. So I guess my challenge for me and for all of you this week is to look at those discrepancies that we talked about from the outset of the podcast to find those areas in our life where we may not be devoting as much time, attention, and behavior to a value as we'd like, where there might be a discrepancy between how much we profess to value something and how much time we're actually committing to that. Because the sad truth is we'll never have enough money and money will never make this go away. There's no white knight. There's not enough money in the world uh, to make you happy from the outside in. So instead, let's refocus our priorities, lift one another up, and focus on the things that matter most. Again, I'm Dr. Daniel Crosby. If you'd like to, um, I would encourage you to leave a five-star review for the Money, Mind, and Meaning podcast 
uh, at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'd also encourage you to check out my new book, uh, The Behavioral Investor, out this October, or to purchase The Laws of Wealth, voted the best investment book of 2017. You can also find me on Twitter at Daniel Crosby or reach out uh, on LinkedIn. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.